of that effort at all. That was good to be able to sing together, and thank you to Doreen and to Aaron for helping us today. You may have asked why did we pick it? Well, it goes well with the theme that we've been considering and come to consider afresh today, this theme in the book of Job. And so we turn in our Bibles this morning to Job in the chapter 2 once again. Job in the chapter 2. We're picking our reading up this morning at the verse 11, and we're carrying on into the chapter 3. Contrast all that we've just been singing, that truth that whatever God ordains is right, with what we've already read as being the life experience of this man Job. And truly that is a sentiment that rang true in his heart and in his life, something that he had to come to a deeper and a fuller knowledge of. It's something that the Lord, through all of these things, was seeking to prove to him. And so let's come afresh to this passage, picking up a reading in the verse 11 of the chapter 2, and continuing down through, uh, down through into the chapter 3. The Word of God says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, so far the Nemethite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their head toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground, seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was very great. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness, let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it, let a cloud dwell upon it, let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it, let it not be joined unto the days of the year, let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary, let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day, who are ready to raise up their mourning. Let the stars of the twilight be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. Because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me, or why the breasts that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or as in hidden, untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. There the wicked cease from troubling, And there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there. And the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery. And life unto the bitter in soul. Which long for death, but it cometh not. And dig for it more than for hid treasures. Which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find a grave. 
Why is light given to a man whose way is hid, and whom God hath hedged in? For my sign cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. And in our reading there at the verse 26. You know, as we've delved into this book of Job, it's interesting to note that there is a uniqueness not only about this man, but indeed about this scriptural account. For in this book of Job, we have the longest recorded time of God speaking to man. That's found for us in the chapters 38 through 41 of the book. But as well as that, not only do we have the longest recorded time of God speaking, but we also have the longest recorded time of Satan speaking. We've already noted some of those instances in Job in the chapters 1 and 2. This book of Job also contains Hebrew words that are not found anywhere else in Scripture, testifying of how early in time that it truly was penned because of the uniqueness of the language that it uses and employs. It contains a mixture of prose, of poetry, of monologue, and then of dialogue. And all of this allows it then to stand out from the other books that are found in our canons of Scripture. As we come to this third chapter this morning, we notice a transition from prose to poetry. And this is one then that continues right throughout the remainder of the book up until the, uh, the ending chapters. And this is important for us to note because as we come to this chapter, and indeed as perhaps you delve into the book in your own quiet time, you're dealing with chapters in which the language is complex and the sentiments are deep. Now, many have found this then to be a distraction as they've studied through the book of Job. Some have simply embarked upon a study of this book, read the opening chapters, and then skipped right through to the end of the story and missed out the very large swathe of Scripture that contains these poetical instances. And so many have never truly got to the bottom of the truth of this book. Many have quit. But as we continue in our considerations, we do well to remain, uh, to remain aware that much of what we come to, especially this morning and then as we conclude next week, is written in poetical style. And because it is written in poetical style, it will not be possible in every verse or indeed in every sentence to understand or indeed to enter into the message in its entirety. Poetry in every instance contains word pictures, contains allegories, contains repetition, and many other identifiable nuances of language. And despite the uh, multiplicity of uh, po poets across the world, there is no common denominator that signifies to us how to discern even the sentiments expressed in their writings. And so as we come to this, we do so against that backdrop of that understanding that we'll, we will never truly be able to plumb the depths of all that Job and 
indeed, in subsequent passages, his three friends are articulating, because some of that is just from the heart of the writer. But bearing all of that in mind, it helps us then to understand this chapter. It helps us, I trust, to understand more about this book. But our considerations are in the last few verses of chapter 2 this morning, and then continuing on into chapter 3. As we look at the end of chapter 2, I want us to notice firstly his three companions. We take a look at his three companions. We are introduced here in verse 11 to Eliphaz, to Bildad, and to Sufar. Men who are immediately identified to us in this divinely inspired record as being his friends, being Job's friends. Now, if we are to get the truth of God's Word in its entirety today, then I must ask you to do something that will be a little difficult to do. I must ask you to cast from your mind all presuppositions that you know about these men. Yes, we have hindsight, and many of us will know that uh, the intentions that are stated here and that will be drawn from these verses ultimately did not come to the conclusion that they hoped, and indeed no doubt Job hoped. But nevertheless, we're dealing with these verses as we find them here at the end of the chapter 2. And to do so, we must cast from our mind all of those presuppositions, and we must behold simply what is before us in this chapter. For before us in this chapter is an account of three men who were motivated to come to their friend. One who they had heard had come to great trouble. One whom no doubt many within the land, many within uh, even beyond the land, were rehearsing all that had come as trouble and tragedy had entered in. The truth that these men and the friendship that they had with Job is seen in their being willing to leave their homes, being willing to leave their families and come to where their friend was. And rightly we can say that the very basis of their friendship is never revealed in this scriptural account. But the truth of their friendship is never in doubt. We don't know how they came to be friends with Job. Simply, the Bible tells us that they are three men who were Job's friends. And this friendship is what motivated them to leave their families, to leave their homes, and to travel to where Job was. Now, in the actions recorded here, we see a deliberate choice. We see a deliberate choice on their behalf to come together to seek to be a comfort, to seek to be an encouragement to Job. Now remember, cast from your mind all that you know will be the outcome of their visit. Cast from your mind how that they failed in these intentions. And simply this morning, note verse 11, which clearly and unequivocally states that they intentionally came from where they were to the place where Job was. And they came with one intention. They came to mourn. And they came to comfort their friend. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon them, 
They came every one from his own place, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Notice also in verse 12, how that they immediately entered into the fulfillment of that mission. When they had lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. There they are traveling, as it were, down the road. And seeing Job in the distance, they see the awful side and the condition that he exists in now. Remember, they're not seeing him in the comfort and the opulent surroundings of his home. Rather, they're seeing him outside of the town, surrounded by rubbish, surrounded by burning piles of refuse. They see a man covered in head, from head to toe in ulcerous sores, to the point that he was disfigured and indeed perhaps even unrecognizable. They saw him covered in ashes. They heard him wailing. And moved in their hearts to the realization of the truth that they had heard, and they now were seeing, the Bible tells us that these men wept and they wept together. These men rent their mantles. These men sprinkled dust upon their heads. These men then came right to where he was, sat down in the midst of that rubbish tip with him, and mourned together with him in those moments. For verse 13, they sat on the ground seven days and seven nights. They didn't open their mouth. They didn't share any gifts. They didn't ask him what was going on. They simply sat down, and they entered into his grief. I believe it's true to say that in this chapter we see the, the confirmation of what the Bible speaks of in Proverbs 17 and the verse 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You know, the Bible has much to say about friendship. It deals with the very foundation of friendship it deals with the principles of friendship. It deals with the evidences of friendship. And indeed, within the words of Scripture, we find numerous examples of true friends. We could think of David and Jonathan. We could mention Mary and Elizabeth. We could look at Paul and Silas. But here in this chapter, we see three men with the right foundation of friendship and showing the right evidences of their friendship. For they recognized that Job was in trouble. And so based upon the truth that they were friends, they didn't reject him. They didn't desert him. They came to where he was. They sought to suffer with him. When no doubt many stayed away in a time of trial and loss and adversity for Job, these men came. These men identified with him. They sought to do as best as they could simply to put themselves in the moment with him. I wonder this morning 
Are there such friends amongst us today? We live in a generation in which friendship, even as sadly amongst God's people, is very superficial. We live in a day and a generation whenever you could count a friend today and he'd be gone tomorrow. And in my role as a pastor, perhaps I'm uniquely placed to comment upon the matter. For many there have been who have promised to be my friend down through the days and through the years, but then whenever I do something or act upon something that isn't to their liking, they're no longer a friend. Many have been the hours and the moments that I have spent with others who have received ill treatment at the hand of so-called friends and had to pick up the pieces of bitter experiences. And this is only amongst God's people. Oh yes, we all have the right foundation of friendship if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, but how many of us are evidencing true friendship one to another, and how many of us then are willing to stick with each other through thick and thin? Remember, the Bible says a friend, and if I could take the liberty of adding a word to the holy record, I would say this, a true friend loveth at all times. And a true brother is born for adversity. Tell me today, are you a true friend? Do those who count you as a friend, can they rely upon you that no matter what comes their way, no matter the trial or the trouble that they could enter into, no matter the moment that may come and enter in and they may seem to be, appear to be as aware under the judgmental hand of God, are you someone who will remain faithful in your friendship to those who you call friends? Or you, do, do you simply do what everybody else seems to do in this generation? Do you use friendship to get something out of an individual rather than seeking to use friendship to give something to an individual? Do you only exercise friendship in the good times? Are you someone who is willing to journey through, work through, and pray through the hard times with your friends? Surely if this passage, the end of chapter 2, teaches us anything, it teaches us there is a meaning to what a true friend really is. And I encourage you this morning, be a friend. Be a true friend. Be a true brother. Not only will we take a look at his companions or a look at his friends, but notice, secondly, we'll consider a lament about his circumstances. For as we enter into chapter 3, this is what really the material of chapter 3 is all consumed with. This chapter is when Job now speaks from emotion. And the emotion that is on display in this third chapter is raw. For this is a man who, remember, has struck rock bottom. He is, as he states at the end of this chapter, a man in turmoil. 
And so from chapter 2 and verse 10, where the Bible tells us that Job sins not with his lips, we now find in Job in chapter 3 articulating things that we would once have considered to be unthinkable. But once more, without rushing to conclusions, we do well to try to envisage how we would feel in his shoes. How would we feel if it was us sitting there having lost everything? How would we feel in that moment if everything that once was before us, everything that once engaged our time, our energy, our love, and our devotion, those whom we counted nearest and dearest to us, were all gone in a moment. Remember, that's where Job finds himself. And notice there, at the beginning of the chapter, it begins with those two words, after this. After all the record of chapter 1. After the double trouble of chapter 2. The Word of God is seeking to place into its proper context the lament that we read off in chapter 3. So after experiencing tragedy, loss, death, grief, and nice sickness, Job speaks, and he speaks out of a heart that is filled with emotion. He's the first one to break the silence that we read off in the verse 13 of chapter 2. And then chapter 3, the verses 1 through 10, he articulates a wish that had never been born. In verses 11 through 19, he expresses a wish that he would have died at birth. In verses 20 through 26, he simply desires to die now. Now immediately we ask ourselves the question, how has Job ended up doing what Satan desired him to do? But is this what he did? Lewis there at the end of verse 1. The Bible tells us that he cursed his day. It doesn't record that he cursed his Lord. It tells us that he cursed his day. It doesn't tell us that he cursed his maker. Remember, Satan's scheme and Satan's plan was that he would curse God in his own heart that he would articulate that with his own lips. And so we are reminded here that there is a world of difference between denying God, cursing God, and then on the other hand, asking questions that amount to, why was I ever born? I wonder this morning, have you ever been in a place like Job has been? How the burdens and the pressure of your life reached a climax and you too have hit rock bottom and you asked the question just as Job did, why was I ever born? What is the point of my life? I just wish that I could die. Do 
Don't think for a moment that this doesn't happen. Because I tell you, it happens in conservative Christianity more than we care to admit. And if this is you, or if this ever has been you, then I pray that God the Holy Spirit ministers to your heart this morning and reminds you that even in such considerations, you're not alone. There are others who have walked this path. There are others who have asked this exact same question. I pray that after what we've just remarked upon in chapter 2, that if you do find yourself at this point in your own life's experience right now, or you do in days to come, I pray that you can identify in your life true friends, faithful friends. But even if that is not true, then I remind you from the Word of God this morning that there is a God in heaven who knows our faintest cry and who records our every word just as he did with Job. He does so as a demonstration of his care. For God is reminding us through what he has recorded and the experience of Job that he is a God who takes note of the aching and the travail of our hearts. And he is a God who welcomes the pouring out of our hearts unto him, just as Job did in this moment. And in a world where we are told to get in a room with someone else and pour out ourselves to them, to unburden ourselves to another, to let it all out. I remind you that the Word of God only ever tells us to do that to God. And so in your grief, and in your pain, and in the aching and the breaking of your heart, let Him have it all. Don't hold it back. Don't compartmentalize it all. Don't seek to pack it all away simply for it to rear its ugly head in another day and another season. Cast all your care upon Him. For He remaineth to be a God who cares for you. Cast your entire burden upon the Lord. And He will sustain you. Notice the repeated usage in this chapter of the words, Why? Let? May? These all provide to us further evidence to the depths of the sentiments that Job is expressing. 
But they also help us to understand this, that what Job is expressing is nothing more than wishful thinking. For Job here is longing for the record of his birth to be expunged from the record of history. For he believes somehow that if he had never been born, he would have never come to trouble. If he had been stillborn, he would never have come to trouble. If he could only die now, then his trouble would be over. But this is nothing more than wishful thinking. This is nothing more than the conversation that an emotionally grief-stricken man engages in. And here at the end of the chapter, he simply sums it all up. And we're paraphrasing, but he's simply saying, I am not at ease. I am not quiet. I am not at rest. I am full of turmoil. For I am not okay. Friend, if you identify with any of that today, I encourage you to let it all out. And whilst doing so in a moment to someone else may be helpful, it will only be helpful for a moment. Because God's Word reminds us that we are to take our burdens and our care to the Lord and leave it there. And you may be rightly or wrongly of the opinion that here on earth no one cares or understands. But I promise to you that God cares. And he will, just as he did with Job, take note of every thought, every word, and every tear. just as he did, then I encourage you to go to the Lord and lament about your circumstances. I look at his companions. I lament about his circumstances. Thirdly and finally, a lesson from his cry. Much of the lesson that we seek to apply this morning is that which we've already applied. But we take a moment to reinforce it. Job is a model for endurance. He is, at all times, even in this chapter, providing us an example in endurance. Now we all come to this chapter, we all come to this book, all of us, only at best able to enter into a small part of Job's sufferings. That's not to trivialize your grief, it's not to minimize your suffering. It's not to rank in order anyone's experiences here. But it is but a reminder that the depths to which Job plummeted to have never really been experienced hitherto.
bar for the experience of our Lord. We identify in his experience that some days are dark. So dark that we can't see the light. We identify in his experience that some days are hard. So hard that it appears that we have no hope. But I believe that this book is given to us to remind us that even in the darkest days, in the darkest of times, hope is always there. And the presence of the true light of the world is always existent. For it was our Lord himself who said, and we've repeated it many times, especially in recent days, but he it was who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And yes, you may be going through something or may you may come in days ahead to something in which God is silent through all of the suffering, through all of the trouble. And here in chapter 3, there's no trace of God. There's no evidence that God is hearing or listening or taking note of anything. We accept that by faith. But accepting that by faith reminds us of that timeless truth that God is never absent. That God knows our frame. And outbursts like the one that's recorded here are very much part of our frame. And questions such as Job asks here, wishes like Job makes here, are all part of our frame also. But through it all, he remains a God with a tender heart. Believer, your emotions may ebb and flow, but God remains the same. Here in this chapter, Job is manifesting to us a life that is filled by feeling and not by faith. Last week, he was a man that we described as walking by faith through the fiery furnace. But this week, he's talking by emotion. We are reminded of if we are to not fall into that very same trap, even in moments of great suffering, then we must always keep our eyes fixed on the object of our faith. Our suffering, your suffering, my suffering can and will be multifaceted. Suffering can include physical suffering. It can include emotional suffering. It can include the suffering of the mind. It can include spiritual suffering. But whatever combination of suffering is your experience, the cure always remains the same. Trust God and keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Paul writes of that in 2 Corinthians in the chapter 1. For in the verse 8 he says, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Here's Paul, the mighty apostle, the one that so many look up to and revere in the Word of God, but here he is penning with his own hand the reality that there came a moment in his life's experience when he thought, what's the point in going on? 
How can I continue to live? It says we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth the dead. And friend, don't mistake this morning anything that I'm saying to you. For trusting God is not the absence of pain. Pain is a reality of life. It's a reminder of the sin into which we are all born. It's a reminder that we are not home yet. So trusting God is not the absence of pain, but trusting God may also include the absence of understanding. We may not know it all, this side of eternity. But trusting God will always include the presence of His peace. And you can have pain, and you can be without understanding, but I promise you, that you will never know a moment that you do not experience His presence. So this morning, keep your eyes fixed on Christ and allow Him to fill your heart with the peace alone that He gives. Even when everything else is crumbling, My faith looks up to thee, thy Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. Now hear me while I pray. Take all my guilt away. Let's stand to our feet to sing together, please.
God, our Father, we praise Thee and we thank Thee even for Thy Word, which has even consistently revealed to us, pointing ever forward, and then, O Lord, pointing backward to that truth that Christ it is who remains the very object of our faith. We praise Thee and we thank Thee, Father, even for the hope that is in us, as He who, who went within the veil carrying His own blood has made a way that one day we will be at home with Thee, free from pain, free from suffering, and a place where God shall wipe every tear from our eye, where the toils and struggles of life will be but a distant memory, as we will know eternal peace there in the glories above. But until that day, oh God, help us to trust in Thee. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Thee. Help us not to rely upon man nor the things of man. Help us, O Lord, to build our lives upon the unfailing truth of Thy Word, and to live, O Lord, holding on to that truth, that whate'er my God ordains is right. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.